Good evening. On behalf of the uh, University uh, Committee on Public Lectures, I'd like to welcome everyone to tonight's uh, second installment in the series of lectures on the ethics of nation building. Um, this is sponsored by the um, Walter E. H. Fund for Lectures in Public and International Affairs. Um, Professor Noah Feldman will be introduced by uh, Professor Armani Jamal of the Department of Politics. Professor Jamal works on Islam and politics, the Middle East, and in particular on the Arab-Israeli conflict. Professor Jamal. Tonight I have the great pleasure and honor to introduce an outstanding member of the academic and policy communities. Professor Noah Feldman is currently an assistant professor of law at NYU. He specializes in constitutional law, administrative law and religion, and the intellectual history of legal theory. Professor Feldman has a distinguished educational background. He graduated summa cum laude from Harvard, receiving a degree in Near Eastern Studies, selected as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford where he earned a PhD in Islamic Studies, and he is a law graduate from Yale. Dr. Feldman also served as the, a senior advisor for constitutional law to the Iraqis, advising them on their constitution up until July 2003, and since then he is still an advisor to the Iraqis on matters relating to the constitution. Dr. Feldman possesses the ability to, to reconcile key tenets of Islamic law and democratic theory. Equipped with tools in Islamic history, Islamic theology, Islamic jurisprudence, and Islamic political thought, along with his overwhelming expertise in constitutional law, Professor Feldman is extremely well suited for the huge task in assisting the Iraqis in the writing of their constitution. If successful, this Iraqi constitution will be the first real Arab constitutional experiment that addresses the religious and democratic concerns of the majority Muslim populations in the region. Tonight, Dr. Feldman presents his second lecture based on his new book manuscript, The Ethics of Nation Building. Weak states are breeding grounds for terrorists, he argues. Strengthening these states will inhibit the ability of terrorists to use these states as launching pads. But rather than strengthen these states through economic and political development that might win citizen loyalties, Feldman goes on to argue the war on terror aims to strengthen these states by increasing their coercive capacities. He contends that this logic is faulty and misleading. After disbanding the Ba'athist regime in Iraq, a weak state emerged which created a new breeding ground for terrorists and one where 140,000 U.S. soldiers became easy targets. <coughs> Excuse me. It is one thing to replace a government that supports terrorism with one that does not, but to replace a strong government with a weak government where terrorism can grow is quite problematic. It is thus vital that a democracy emerge in Iraq, not only for our own strategic interest, where promoting regional stability is a must, but also a well-functioning democracy can help curb the growing manifestation of terrorism. As the challenges to building democracy in Iraq are becoming more cumbersome, walking away from Iraq is not really an option. Walking away would mean harming our strategic interests and cause great injury to the people of Iraq. The true struggle remains in finding ways to continue to secure our own strategic interests while simultaneously promoting the interests of the Iraqi people. Dr. Feldman states that, states that our foreign policy needs to be accompanied by a moral ethic that can accomplish both goals. He says, 
What we need is an ethic that acknowledges both the politically immovable impulse to serve national security and also the moral principles that most or perhaps nearly all Americans would be willing to adopt if they were put to the public clearly and directly. Tonight's discussion, trusteeship, paternalism, and self-interest raises these moral questions. The relationship between entrusted and trustee is one where the trustee looks out for the welfare of those who are entrusted. The idea of older, advanced nation states helping younger, underdeveloped nations crystallized under Wilson's political vision that led to the creation of the League of Nations. As Professor Feldman argues, and will argue this evening, this notion of trusteeship is flawed. The, paternal, the paternalism of this formulation could not have been more explicit. When applied to Iraq, this framework of trusteeship is seen as nothing more than an occupation. Based on historical cases, did we keep true to the ideals of trusteeship as conceptualized by Wilson? Can a country that is entrusted with the welfare of another country not be paternalistic? How can one not prioritize self-interest over the interest of those entrusted? Under what circumstances do the interests of trustee and entrusted converge, and when do they diverge? These questions and others, with their relevance to Iraq, will, will be addressed by Dr. Feldman this evening. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Noah Feldman. Professor Jama, thank you so much for that generous introduction. I feel as though we should have begun by saying previously in this space, and we could have moved right along to that introduction. It was perfect uh, to set up the topic of this evening's lecture. In Baghdad, do we make our scene? Specifically, in the auditorium of the Iraqi Lawyers Association, a room approximately three times the size of this one. And on this particular day in May of 2003, imagine the room filled to overflowing with perhaps a thousand Baghdadi lawyers. I would say roughly about 800 men and 200 women. Uh, the older men in suits and ties, the younger men leaving their ties at home. It's hot, very hot outside, but for the first few minutes, imagine that the air conditioning actually works. It actually happened. For about 30 minutes, the air conditioning worked, and it made you realize that sometimes in Iraq, institutions that were favored by the state actually had pretty good infrastructure. Then the electricity went out and the temperature started to rise. I asked the superintendent uh, of the building, who had kept a careful eye on the building throughout the, the, what we then called the war, but what of course turned out just to be the first part of the war, uh, what was going on, and he said the problem was not the air conditioning. He said the air conditioning was fine. It was the power in the entire city that had gone out. <laughs> now, this particular meeting was the first opportunity in which a representative of the Coalition Provisional Authority was meeting with assembled members of the Iraqi bar. And those who were here were those Baghdadi lawyers who had gotten wind of the meeting. The representative of the CPA was General Donald Campbell, who was a reserve general uh, in the U.S. military, and in his civilian life, a judge, in fact, a New Jersey Superior Court judge, of the kind that uh, all of us in this room would appear before if we should get into a drunken brawl on the way home. And Judge Campbell, as I always called him, was up on a dais not unlike this one with a long table laid out in front of it, and he was trying to call the meeting to order. And he couldn't. He couldn't call the meeting to order. The reason was that people were standing in the aisles, screaming and yelling 
about the man who was sitting to Judge Campbell's left. That man was the president of the Iraqi Lawyers Association, elected by the membership. And the people in the audience were yelling at Judge Campbell, not that Judge Campbell could understand them, because they were yelling in Arabic, that this man was Uday Saddam Hussein's personal conciliary uh, and had been chief counsel of the Iraqi Olympic Association, which was the particular fiefdom of Uday. And they further made it clear that they were not going to start the meeting or allow the meeting to get underway until this man was removed from the dais. Now, it took a little while for Judge Campbell to understand this through his trusty translator, Fatima, who was a wonderful and patient woman, a school teacher, pressed into service under these pretty stressful conditions. But he did finally understand it. And after about an hour of this, he turned to me. I was somewhere out in the audience trying to get a sense of what people were angry about and said, well, now what? What do we do now? So I said to him, well, Judge, I think we have really two options. We can go home and try again another day, or you can remove the president of the Iraqi Lawyers Association and see what happens. There's a long pause, and I could tell the judge was thinking it over. I spent a long time with judges. I know when they're thinking things over. They look all sage and wise. And then Judge Campbell got up on the dais, spoke into the microphone, was translated by Fatima, and he said, it is the policy of the coalition that we will not work with senior Baathists, and I am told that this man beside me is a senior Baath Party member and an associate of Uday Saddam Hussein. Sir, you are no longer the president of the Iraqi Lawyers Association. Please step down. Shock in the room. And then noise, applause, some booing, then more applause. At this point in the chaos, the actual president of the Iraqi Lawyers Association got up and said he had something he wanted to say, and Judge Campbell got silence in the room and allowed him to speak. And the president of the Iraqi Lawyers Association said, there is a law whereby I was elected. It's called the Iraqi Lawyers Law. It says that the president of the association can only be replaced in a national election of all of the 25,000 qualified lawyers who are all authorized to vote in it. You have not removed me pursuant to that provision, so I'm still the president of the Iraqi Lawyers Association. The judge turned back to me. Now I had done the thing that you're never supposed to do when you're advising a judge. I had gotten the judge into a legal pickle. And he was looking for an answer, and I knew an answer, but I wasn't sure the answer was going to make him happy. Well, Judge, I said, you've got two options. We can go home, or you can say that pursuant to the authority of international law and our authority as occupiers to establish public life and order, you are authorized to remove him. Long moment, more thinking. And the judge turned back to the microphone, and he said, sir, pursuant to our authority as occupiers of this country and to the Hague Convention, Part 4, Article 43, which grants us authority over public life and order. Uh, we can argue about that translation if there are lawyers in the audience. It's not perhaps the correct one. The French is la vie et l'ordre public. You, sir, he said, are removed. Kindly step down. And then it happened. The president of the Iraqi Lawyers Association got up from his chair, walked out the door, walked out the room. We began the meeting in calm, orderly fashion. 
Dozens of Iraqi lawyers spoke and expressed their concerns. They made a plan to meet three days hence to elect new interim leaders of the organization. And the meeting proceeded more or less in the way that any other meeting you've ever been to uh, would proceed if it were full of lawyers, which is to say it was long on procedure, short on substance, terribly dull, and more or less efficient. International law, it would seem, had done its work. But what work was that? By citing the annex to the Hague regulations, Judge Campbell had proffered a legal justification for the act that he was undertaking. But to many people in the audience, and I'm sure to many of the people in this audience, all he had done, in fact, was to exert force. Were it not for the fact that we, broadly speaking, the occupiers, came with a large military force. I don't mean that there was a large military force in the room. There were just three or four soldiers in the room, but there were many more in the city. There's no conceivable way that the head of the Lawyers Association would have stepped down. And when I canvassed the room after this decision, several people said to me, well, you know, you know, the bottom line is that the law does remain in place, even under conditions of occupation. So this decision was not correct. And indeed, to emphasize the point that this was about force, you might ask yourself, what happens if we were wrong as a matter of our interpretation of the Hague regulations? What if, in fact, we were not authorized to remove this particular person according to the best reading of those international laws? Well, the answer is nothing. Nothing would happen because the Hague regulations, like the Geneva Convention, don't provide any mechanism for their own enforcement. So in that sense, I think it's fair to say that what was going on was force. From a subtly different perspective, however, something else was happening when Judge Campbell, a lawyer, was offering a legal justification to the presence of the Iraqi Lawyers Association in the presence of 1,000 Baghdadi lawyers. He was trying, using terms that would be discussable by jurists of reason, to offer some justification that went beyond mere force for an act of removal. And indeed, he was also, through that mechanism, trying to appeal to an ethical argument. Essentially, I think, what Judge Campbell was trying to say to the people present was that we were superseding, we the occupiers were superseding Iraqi law in order to serve the interests of the Iraqis. In other words, that in some profound sense, we were suspending Iraqi law for the Iraqis' own good. Now, I confess that it's pretty hard to say those words now, standing here in this lecture hall, rather far from the previous one. And it's difficult, really, for two reasons. First of all, that argument just sounds horribly paternalistic. We were suspending their law for their own good. Second of all, it sounds as though it might be a lie. Right? It just sounds false. Oh, it was for the Iraqis' own good. Seems preposterous. I take it that these two objections are the two most prominent objections that I need to deal with if I want to offer some sort of defensible account of the ethics of nation building. I need to explain, first of all, what can be done about the paternalistic overtones uh, and perhaps undertones and perhaps medium tones, too, of the notion that the law can be suspended in someone else's own interests or that power can be exercised over people in their own interests? And second, the skeptical reaction that says that this justification is nothing in practice 
other than a convenient falsehood. And I will, over the course of the next little while, I hope, address both of those concerns and also offer some insights into the way these dynamics have been playing themselves out in Iraq. Before I do, though, I want to introduce the basic conception that I think underlies the description that I'm now going to try to defend. And that is the idea of trusteeship in the context of nation building. Now, trusteeship has a very rich and complex and in many ways problematic history in the context of both occupation and nation building. In its earliest context, it can be traced, and some would trace it in, in the international context, to the writings of the Spanish canonists, uh, Bartolomé de las Casas and Francisco Vitoria, who, the latter of whom, uh, specified in early writings about the Indians of the New World that these people possessed laws, religion, and other qualities that made them men who deserved to be governed and who ultimately might in principle govern themselves, but who in the interim before they were able to govern themselves must be governed by a type of wardship. This ideology can also be seen in a speech, a famous speech of Edmund Burke's in the parliamentary debate about the powers of the East India Company in 1783. And in that debate, Burke argued that power should be exercised on behalf of the Indian subjects as a trust exercised for their benefit. Now, it may fairly be said of Victoria's view, and indeed, I think, of Burke's, that it simultaneously constrained the exercise of power by the imperialist or the colonialist and also authorized that exercise. Now, depending on one's perspective, you could see this as a brilliant piece of enlightened thinking or a devilish piece of rhetoric designed to cover the injustices of colonialism. I think the honest truth has got to be that it was a little bit of both in both, both cases. Now, I'm going to return to Burke's conception of trusteeship in a couple of moments. But before I do that, I also want to talk about the role of the, trust, of the idea of trusteeship in the international law of occupation, which is a little bit different from its role in the history of imperialism, though, as you'll see, they are connected. Begin with the Hague Regulations, which predate, uh, in fact, the First World War, and which present the occupier's responsibilities in terms that are directly borrowed from the theory of trusteeship. And here is how the trusteeship relationship works according to the Hague Regulations, roughly speaking. The occupying party, whom classical international law calls the occupant, but since I find that terminology confusing, I'll just call them the occupier, which seems a little bit more colloquial. The occupier holds the people to be governed who have been conquered and their land in trust for the rightful sovereign. And the expectation is that ultimately the occupier will return those people to their sovereign. So notice the relationship. The trustee, the person who holds the property in question, is the occupier. The thing being held in trust is the people and property of the country. And the beneficiary of that trust, the person on whose behalf the property is being held, is the rightful sovereign who is expected to return. Consequently, pillage is pro prohibited. Tax collection is prohibited only for the benefit of the state. 
private property remains inviolate. Now, the ideology of trusteeship changed in the wake of the First World War in the Covenant of the League of Nations, when Wilsonian ideals of democratic self-determination met up with the idea of trusteeship. In this conception, embodied in Article 22 of the Covenant of the League, trusteeship now described a relationship between the rest of the world and certain peoples who were described as undeveloped and, I quote, not yet able to stand by themselves under the strenuous conditions of the modern world. And so here is language from Article 22 explaining what this relationship ought to be. There should be applied the principle that the well-being and development of such peoples, that is to say, those who can't stand by themselves, form a sacred trust of civilization, and that securities for the formance of this trust should be embodied in this covenant. Notice now how the conception is changing. Now, the trustee is civilization. The thing being held in trust is no longer the people, but rather the well-being and development of the people, some quality possessed by the people. And the beneficiary of the trust now is those people themselves. So there's been a rather radical shift from the Hague model in which, again, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, the trustee who uh, is holding on to the country is the occupier, and he is holding the people in trust for the rightful sovereign who will return. In this sacred trust, civilization, the trustee, would then delegate the management of the subject peoples to a delegate who would be called the party mandated to control the trust. And in practice, that was described, that was going to be, in fact, France and England, France or England. So thus far, the conception of trusteeship in this arrangement. Now, the paternalism of this formulation could hardly be overstated. It was a profound uh, model of paternalism. And not surprisingly, everywhere that it was understood by the people whose development was to be held in trust, it was profoundly disliked by them. Comes as no very great surprise. Now, how ought we to go about analyzing a mode of trusteeship that might be defensible, given this legacy, which, from, I think, the fair-minded way I presented it, seems pretty much altogether indefensible in our contemporary context? Why even bother with trusteeship as a way of thinking about things? Well, I think the proof will be in the doing, so let me try to defend a conception of trusteeship that's rather different from these traditional modes, but which nonetheless still might be defensible. In order to do so, let me just introduce a simple heuristic device borrowed from the economic analysis of what's called the costs of agency. In any standard relationship where I ask another person to do something on my behalf, I need, to a certain degree, to trust the person who's, who's going to be performing that act, and I need to be able to monitor the person to make certain that the action performed is actually the thing that I want done. Very simple model. Now, this agency cost model, where the cost to me of conferring trust and monitoring are known as the costs of agency, can be applied schematically to any trustee relationship. Someone begins as the possessor of the entity to be put in trust, 
and confers or delegates on the trustee the responsibility to take care of it. And the trustee's job is to take care and hold on to that trust for the benefit of some third party. And whoever is concerned to make sure that the trustee actually acts in the interests of the beneficiary needs to be able to monitor this process. So that same analysis of cost of agency can be used schematically to characterize how we would regulate some formulation of trust relationship. Now let's talk about what might be a plausible model of the trust relationship. And here I'm going to come back to Burke again. Burke did not only speak of trust as the way in which political power should be authorized to be exercised in the interests of colonized peoples. Burke also famously, perhaps more famously, spoke of the trust model as the appropriate model for the authority delegated to any legitimate government, including a representative one, I won't say a democratic one, because Burke himself would turn in his grave with that use of that word, but a representative one. In other words, Burke argued in several locations in his writing that when one spoke of the authority exercised by an elected representative in Parliament, the correct model for thinking about that was that the power to govern was a power that the people who chose that delegate placed in him, it was always him in Burke's world, and that which he then was responsible to exercise as a trust for the benefit of the people governed and in their interests, crucially in their interests. Now, this is a very controversial aspect of Burke's thinking, and indeed, the debate about whether this is the right way to think about representative government is an evergreen debate that shows no signs of abating. Nonetheless, I think we can at least agree that when we're speaking of a form of government in which people are chosen to run the government for some duration of time, those people are the trustees of the actual power to govern. Now, notice that this is a much less upsetting, though, of course, it is still, in a sense, paternalistic. This is a much less upsetting formulation. Now, the trustee is not in charge of the people, doesn't own the people to give them back to some other sovereign. Now, the trustee is not in charge of well-being or development. Now, the trustee is just in charge of exercising political power for some definite period of time. Now, you will notice, and this is something I'm going to be talking about in the rest of the lecture, and we're going to talk about it tomorrow night as well, that in electoral democracy, the people choose nominally the person to whom they're delegating this authority, and then they get subsequently to choose to remove that person from office. And this can be seen as a monitoring mechanism within the framework of the cost of agency. The people are simply choosing a representative who will then act as he or she will, and then they will have an opportunity to ultimately decide whether they want that person to remain in power or not. Needless to say, the monitoring mechanism of direct election is not present in the period of nation building. As we'll have more opportunity to explore tomorrow, if it were possible to hold elections the day that a prior government ceased to exist, nation building proper might not be necessary. So we're talking about situations where elections have not occurred. And to make the point even more graphic, Ambassador L. Paul Bremer will not be running for office in Iraq. 
Neither would the late Sergio Vieira de Mello have run for office in East Timor, where he would have been soundly defeated, notwithstanding the good job that many people in the international community think he did, nor would, would Dr. Bernard Kushner have run for office in Kosovo. The structure, in other words, of nation-building deprives the people being governed of electoral mechanisms as the direct mode of monitoring the officials who are administering their nation-building. But that does not fully exhaust the set of techniques available for the monitoring of a person who's exercising power, electoral power, rather governing power, in a trust. There are other mechanisms which can also be used. So let's just talk about one or two of the most salient. The first, of course, is speech, which is the most effective mechanism that we use for monitoring when we're between elections. Sometimes it seems in the United States that we're never between elections. But every so often we are. And in that context, free speech is one of the first and most effective mechanisms of checking governmental behavior, monitoring, to be more precise, what the government is doing. Now, I will argue that in order to make a trusteeship model that is ethically defensible, the exerciser of the governing power on behalf of the people of the country has got to permit freedom of speech and rather extensive freedom of speech, and more to the point, has to permit freedom of that speech which involves criticism of the way that that actor, that entity, is actually running the show. Now, an example that suggests to me a place where the CPA has fallen down badly on the job in this respect was the recent closing of Muqtada Sadr's proprietary newspaper, which was the first in a series of events that, in fact, ultimately led to the small uprising, which could become a larger uprising, uh, of Muqtada Sadr's self-declared Mahdi army in the southern part of the country. Now, there are other reasons that the closure of this newspaper was a terrible mistake, not least among them that it functioned as a kind of telegram to Sadr, telling him, you know, this would be an excellent time to have an uprising. You know, we're, we're going to come after you next. But leaving that aside... And even leaving aside the particularities of the things that were being reported in that newspaper, which were, I think, certainly false things, such as that Americans had intentionally blown up uh, the Mount Lebanon Hotel in downtown Baghdad, the mere fact of closing strongly indicated to ordinary Iraqis that this paper was making some legitimate criticisms of the civilian administration. And it's a good indicator that here we were, the CPA was making a fundamental error there needs to be a monitoring effect. And not coincidentally, the fact that the CPA bothered to shut down the newspaper suggests something of the sensitivity that even an unelected occupier feels for direct criticism. So speech is key. Second, assembly. No better way to judge how people are feeling about a government than how many people show up in a big public place when asked to do so, to protest it. Another very effective monitoring device, especially effective where elections are not taking place and it's very difficult to know from polls how people really feel about things. When Ayatollah Ali Sistani wanted to emphasize to the Coalition Provisional Authority that he was really serious about making certain that the interim transitional government slated to take power on June 30th or July 1st was not to be selected by a system of caucuses, first he made his views known to the coalition, and then he called for a day's protest. 
100,000 people showed up on the streets of Baghdad. Pretty significant and had an enormous practical effect. In fact, it led precisely to the abandonment of that plan. Then people in the CPA said, oh boy, you know, Ayatollah Sistani has opened the floodgates and he's not going to be able to control it. So the next day Sistani said, please stay home, everybody. And everybody stayed home. Again, an effective mechanism of monitoring the government. So at a minimum, free speech and free assembly have to be permitted. And I would note, in fairness to the CPA, that that assembly was permitted, as indeed have many such assemblies uh, with practical effects. So it's not all mistakes, like the closing of the newspaper was. A mistake that I'm suggesting now is not only practical but also ethical. There are sometimes things that are a little bit better in the record, and that's an instance of one of them. In general, the relative freedom of assembly in Iraq is a significant plus on the side of options for allowing monitoring to continue. So those are crucial bits of the process. Another feature is the voices of actual members of the body that's under occupation. In the case that we've been speaking about, Iraqis. The voices of the Iraqis with respect to, and I don't mean the voices of all Iraqis because it's not even clear what that would mean, but the voices of at least some Iraqis are crucial to ensuring that nation building does not take place in a way that pays no attention to the actual interests of Iraqis as Iraqis perceive them. And there are various ways in which those views can be expressed. There are various types of positions that Iraqis can or should take, and indeed which one would hope to see in any, in any plausibly, even plausibly ethical nation building exercise. So for one thing, there's been a governing council which, as the newspapers have faithfully reported, and as is true, was handpicked by the Americans, but which nonetheless, as I'll say in a few moments, actually, despite that fact, often disagrees with the United States and often expresses views that are strongly disparate to those of the United States, in no small part because the members of the governing council, without exception, hope to be elected in a subsequent government. So their interests actually correspond roughly to the interests of an ordinary elected government during the period between elections. They want to be voted for. So it's in their interest to express what they take to be the views of Iraqis who may subsequently be voting for them. Now, of course, it's a complicated game, and it involves the fact that those people also want to become first movers in those elections and are attaining national prominence. But frankly, if they think that the occupation is going badly, they have nothing to gain by speaking warmly of the occupation. And indeed, we have seen that. As the occupation has gone worse and worse, the governing council has distanced itself more and more from the occupying forces. Uh, the members of the governing council have not been at all shy about criticizing uh, U.S. policy. And indeed, it is largely because of the intervention of members of the governing council that the Fallujah fighting, which has been flaring up again today has not been at a fever pitch over the last week. It's members of the governing council who essentially said to the CPA, look, you can't go forward with this. Not only will we not support you, we will criticize you publicly. And indeed, they have been criticizing them publicly. This is another form of monitoring. There are also the roles of those Iraqis who are in practice actually running affairs on the ground in Iraq. And I have in mind here the transitional ministers who are running ministries and therefore essentially delivering the basic services that are being delivered, such as they are in the country, all of whom are running their ministries without major, excuse me, intervention from the CPA, except to the extent that the CPA is necessarily providing resources. Now, again, 
It's not that the CPA wouldn't like to exercise plenty of control over these ministries. It's just, as I shall say in a moment, that very often they can't. These ministers, too, have a significant interest in continuing successful political or bureaucratic, in their case, careers in the country, and they, too, function as a kind of check. Now, what about the element of paternalism, which I think is almost inescapable, which says the very undertaking of nation-building, the very idea that someone else is building this nation, is bringing its expertise, its knowledge, its capacity to advise, itself is so deeply imbued with the notion of paternalism that it can never be ethically defensible. Now, again, I'm very sympathetic to that claim, so let me try to offer you a stripped-down conception of what nation-building can practically do and ought to do that might begin to satisfy that. And it begins with the following proposition, which I think is undeniable. Countries like the United States may be richer, indeed are richer, than countries like Iraq and more powerful than countries like Iraq. But in the United States, we, and I mean not just citizens, but also people in the government and also people in the academy, because many people in the academy are called on to participate in these things, do not know any better than any Iraqi or anyone else in an occupied country, really, how to build a nation in those countries. Let me be really clear about what I'm saying here. We don't have any comparative advantage when it comes to actually figuring out how institutions ought to work. The examples we bring, the cross-cultural analyses and the statistical regressions, tend to be extremely indeterminate, even by our own standards. And when you marry the indeterminacy of the abstractions to a deep ignorance of the particularities of the society in question, we end up scoring well behind even the most basically educated Iraqi and having a strong sense of how the country could be constructed. So I want to argue that the form of nation building that I have in mind, the stripped down conception of, of nation building that might be ethically defensible, would have to forswear any special knowledge of how to do things. Now this is a serious thing to take on, and some might say that that's the end of the lecture right there, because how could one ever in practice swear such a thing off? I cannot tell you how many people excitedly told me how thrilled they was they were that I was going to write the Iraqi Constitution, when in fact nothing could be further for the truth from the truth, not only because in practice, as I'm as I promise I'm going to say shortly, I would have no power to write the Iraqi Constitution, but because as a theoretical matter, I have no particularized expertise that is not available to Iraqis who are comparably situated. They will inevitably be better at doing that. The very act of getting on a plane and going to a country under occupation puts you into a kind of cultural script of trusteeship as colonialism that's extremely difficult to avoid going right down to what you pack in your suitcase when you get on the plane. If you bring your linen suit with you, you're in trouble right there. There are cultural norms that are deeply embedded in our conceptions of nation building, and they are very hard to avoid, almost impossible to avoid. And to that extent, I think it's fair to say, we won't achieve a stripped-down conception of nation-building that will be ethically sustainable. To really be ethically sustainable, we must really eschew the notion that we know how to do things better. So then what use are we? Then what's the point of us being there at all? Here there's a one-word answer, in fact, 
but it's a word that hides a host of important consequences. And that word is security. Now, security situation in Iraq is as bad as, not as bad as it could be, because it could get worse, and it quite possibly will. But it's very, very bad. And it's bad for a simple reason. The reason it's bad is that the United States did not invade Iraq with a large enough number of troops. It's really that simple. That is the original sin. Well, I suppose one would say that is the original sin of nation building. Someone would say that the original sin of the whole apparatus is the decision to invade, and I could hardly argue with that. But the original sin of nation building itself here is attempting to invade a country with 100,000 people, a country of 25 million. Indeed, I think that the drama of uh, Bob Woodward's new book, and it is a dramatic book, to me is the shrinking of a war plan that begins with half a million troops on the first page to a war plan that has 65,000 troops on the last page. To me, that's the drama, watching it shrink. Because each moment that it shrinks, what's hiding behind it, in my view, is the certainty of grave difficulty and perhaps a failure. In the absence of security in Iraq, what has happened is that ordinary Iraqis, within days after the collapse of the regime, found themselves in the position when they very quickly had to find new organizational affiliations to keep themselves safe. Now, to the outsider, this looks like the reemergence of primordial denominational identities, Shia and Sunni, or ethnic identities, Kurd and Arab. But I warn you and I charge you not to jump to the conclusion that these are what Robert Kaplan is famous for, for vernacularly calling ancient hatreds, somehow reemerging after the emergent, after the conclusion of a totalitarian regime. That theory may not even be true of the Balkans, and it is certainly not true of Iraq. Instead, imagine yourselves in a situation where the regime has collapsed and you have no certainty that your security can come from anywhere. Now look around you. On which people would you rely if you needed to protect yourself? If you needed to produce in short order what the late Robert Nozick in his thought experiment, Anarchy, State, and Utopia, called mutual protective associations. If you needed to form with others around you some group to protect yourself, and I mean at the most basic level, to guarantee you security, you would have to take a gamble on what affiliation in the world would be most likely to produce a group of people who were willing and able to protect you and to protect one another. And you'd have to do that in an environment where everyone else was asking himself or herself the exact same question. This is a game theorist's dream or a game theorist's nightmare. In such an environment, one is very likely to hit on denominational or ethnic identities just because one is making a bet as to what more other people will also choose. Because after all, if I choose my local bowling team and everyone else chooses their basketball team, I will have nobody to join up with. I'll show up by myself, bowling alone, to coin a phrase. The bottom line is that I need to choose the organization that others are also going to choose. And that is precisely what happened in Iraq. So when the CPA is criticized for reifying the ethnic and denominational identities of Iraqis, as they surely will be after the unveiling today with, I think, particularly poor timing of a new Iraqi flag uh, with three stripes, two blue, which seems also like a poor choice, uh, and one yellow representing, probably, uh, Shia, Sunni, and Kurd, the criticism is inapposite in the sense that 
It's often meant, it's often made by nationalists, Iraqi nationalists who say, well, you in the West created these identities. You reify them. That's not exactly accurate. We are responsible to a certain degree for their reemergence, but it's precisely because of our failure to provide sufficient security for the country. Now, in this environment, what the nation builder can and ought to do, and is indeed ethically bound to do, and I think is this can, can do and must do, consistent with this stripped-down conception of nation-building, is to provide a security environment in which people could actually choose affiliations on some grounds other than pure self-protection. And only in that environment does civil society have any chance of emerging. After all, civil society institutions are actually rather good under conditions of security enabling, in enabling people to talk about problems instead of beginning immediately to shoot one another. One thinks of Poland and the transfer of authority from the communist regime there. But where my main goal must be to protect myself from being shot, it's the militia I need to join, not the debating society. So what we can do and must do is provide a security environment without which there is actually no chance of the differing groups in the society negotiating towards the kind of pact I spoke about last night in which they have a chance of actually sharing power and developing some peaceful governments. Now, I said that I would talk about the challenge as well, not just the challenge that, not just the challenge that it's paternalistic to think of nation building as a power exercised on behalf of the people who are being governed, but also to the charge that it just sounds as though it were a lie, just sounds as though it were a falsehood. And I would make this criticism a little sharper by saying, look, the United States has the army in Iraq. We don't have as big an army as I've said we should have, but we have the army and nobody else does. Well, the Kurds have an army, but it's not on the same scale as ours. It's about half the size. So how can it realistically be imaginable that we would exercise power on behalf of Iraqis? Aren't we inevitably going to exercise power in a rather absolutist way on behalf of ourselves? Now, I don't mean to deny that there are profound conflicts of interest implicit in what it is to be an occupying power. And indeed, tomorrow I'll talk a little bit more at length about some of those conflicts and how they operate. So I'm not pretending that those don't exist, they do. But I have a pretty straightforward answer to the claim that the notion of exercising power on someone else's behalf is indefensibly and obviously a lie. And it's this. In fact, it is extraordinarily difficult for the occupier, especially in an environment like Iraq, to just exercise power on its own behalf however it would like to do. The realities on the ground are such that many Iraqis have a great deal of power exercised in different ways, which I'll speak about in a moment, that significantly thwart the goals and interests with which the occupying power began. Now, it's become an academic cliche to say that power is negotiated. But sometimes academic cliches are true. It's rare, perhaps, but it does turn out to be true sometimes. And to the great astonishment of the civilians in the Department of Defense who had not, at least not recently, read their Foucault, it's turned out to be the case in Iraq that the authority that the coalition aspired to exercise on a broad range of bases has been unavailable to it. And I could give you innumerable, innumerable examples of this. Let me just give you a couple of small ones. 
Ambassador Bremer announced during the run-up to constitutional negotiations that he would veto any constitutional proposals that rendered this a state with a significant Islamic character. And he was pressured to do so uh, by various constituencies in the United States, um, mostly, though, a Christian evangelical constituency that, despite its general preference for a weaker degree of separation between church and state in the United States, somehow has a strong preference for separation of church and state in Iraq. That, I promise, is a topic for another lecture and, indeed, another book. But he said that he announced this, and within three days, the proposals in the negotiations for the clauses specifying that Islam is the state religion and that no law shall contradict the principles of Islam on which there is consensus, that's the final formulation, and indeed that Islamic law should be a source of legislation for the state, had been buttressed and strengthened to a degree almost unimaginable before his comments. In other words, they had an exactly reverse effect. Now, anyone who spent five minutes in the region would obviously know that this was going to happen because there's nothing to charge up pro-political Islamist sentiment like the occupation authority saying that he's going to exercise a veto power over it. But why didn't Ambassador Bremer then through the, you know, with the authorization of the President of the United States, simply insist that the text of the constitutional draft, which was drafted by a subcommittee of a body appointed entirely by Americans, just not say that Islam was the official religion? I mean, this is actually a philosophically interesting question. Considering that this document was going to have no democratic legitimacy anyway, was seen by fewer than 100 Iraqis, might even be fewer than 50 Iraqis before it was promulgated, was signed just by the 25 members of the governing council, why didn't the President of the United States or Ambassador Bremer, who wants to be confirmed as Secretary of State, just insist that the document not be truly Islamic, as Bremer's public comment suggested? Well, the answer is pretty simple. Even though this document was aspirational at best, it would have had no chance at all of being considered or even of being signed by the 25 governing council members, handpicked men and women all, if it had not had the provisions which it had in it. There, in fact, was significant veto power, more than veto power, drafting and compositional power, in the people who were drafting this document. They were in a negotiation with the political authorities that were being offered, that were being exercised over them. And indeed, as I said, examples of this could be multiplied. One can even understand the Sunni Arab uprising in and around Fallujah as a more extreme form of the countervening of coalition authority and power. When you've got to go to your guns, you're playing a different game than you are if you're still at the negotiating table, but it's not an entirely unrecognizable game. It's still a game in which the behavior of the occupier is being actively checked. So my point is not that there aren't contradictions in saying that one is exercising power on behalf of someone else. It's that as a matter of realism, nor is it that people might be lying when they say they're doing that. Of course they might be lying. These are politicians. What would one expect otherwise? They wouldn't be politicians worth their salt if they didn't lie. The point is that there are actual real-world constraints on the capacities of occupiers acting as trustees to engage in behavior that ultimately would be seen by the beneficiaries of the trust as not serving their interests. Because power is negotiated, 
the options which are available to the occupier are far more limited than might otherwise be thought. Now, I want to talk to you tomorrow about elections and their place in the monitoring process that I've spoken of. So I owe you that, and I'm laying down a marker now to speak about that, because, of course, the model of delegated governance in a democracy is structured around elections as the main monitoring mechanism, and as I've fully acknowledged, that's absent in the model of trusteeship I'm speaking of. But before we move on to those issues, and I let you go for the evening or open myself up to your, to your questions and challenges, I want to close with some thoughts on the phenomenon of internationalization of the situation in Iraq, which I have not spoken of at any length yet, but which follows directly on my initial anecdote about the uses of international law as a source of legitimacy in the context of occupation. Notice that our sense of being dissatisfied with the model of trusteeship, and I imagine from your faces that there's a lot of dissatisfaction out there, feels rather different when we're speaking of Kosovo or of East Timor. The presence of the international community, perhaps in the form of the United Nations, authorizing a transitional administration, seems to cleanse in some way the occupation of some of the charges of paternalism, or at least of some of our other worries. I want to suggest to you that that cleansing is illusory. Those persons who exercise authority during transitional administrations that are established with UN authorization are subject to many of the same, indeed almost all of the same monitoring problems as are occupation transitional administrators like Ambassador Bremer. And indeed, if one listens to what people in East Timor were saying, not the international community, but people in East Timor were saying about the East Timor experience, or to what people in Kosovo have been saying, sometimes loudly and sometimes with guns recently, about the Kosovo experience, one can immediately observe that the primary issue that they raise is that these transitional administrators are non-responsible autocrats, governing over them with almost no concern for what they do. Now, you might say, well, the international community is there, and the trustee is responsible to the international community. Well, it didn't work very well when it was the British responsible to the civilized world in the League of Nations under the mandate system. And it has not worked terribly well in the context of the United Nations either. The international community has other things on its mind, and it has its own interests, and the bureaucrats in the United Nations have their own interests, and none of these converge particularly well, necessarily, with the interests of those people being governed. So I want to suggest to you that with respect to paternalism and monitoring and convergence of interests, the international administrator may be just as subject to the charge of unjustifiable exercise of trusteeship power as may be the occupier. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not an excellent idea. There were too many negatives in that. It is nonetheless an excellent idea for the United States to encourage an increased and expanded role for the international community in its administration of Iraq, mostly because it's good for the United States. It won't make a tremendously large difference to most Iraqis, and I can assure you that most Iraqis couldn't care less. If tomorrow Ambassador Bremer were replaced by Lakhdar Brahimi, the Sunni insurgency would go on unabated, 
the incipient Shia insurgency would also continue. Now, I'm not saying this to criticize the United Nations. I think it's, as a matter of national policy of the United States, preposterous that we've allowed the rift to develop between us and the international community that we have done. But let's make no mistake about it. It's for us, for the Americans' interests, that internationalization is now being spoken of. It is not, in fact, broadly speaking, in the interest of Iraqis. And the reason I raise this point is to emphasize to you that although we will be told, including by candidates whom some of us might think are good candidates for office, that internationalization is the magic bullet for solving the problems of the legitimacy of the U.S. occupation in Iraq, don't believe it. Internationalization, again, good thing. All for it. Will it solve our problems? No. Will it solve our problems ethically? No. Will it solve our problems practically? Certainly not. Again, I'm not saying not to do it. I'm saying do not place too much faith in it. What is desirable as a matter of domestic and international politics may not, nonetheless, be fully desirable as a matter of solving the situation in Iraq and the ethical challenges that we are, in, that we are faced with. Essentially, what I want to say to you in conclusion is that we need once again to remember that we have to separate our condemnation of the reasons or the fact of the initial intervention in Iraq from the necessity of continuing with nation building. If we indulge in the luxury, and it is a luxury, of condemning the nation building project in Iraq just because we object to how we got there, we may miss the point of the ethical obligations that stare us in the face. We got ourselves and the Iraqis into this fix, and now I suggest to you we need to see it through. Time for questions. We have one there. Uh, can you wait for the microphone to reach you? Thank you, Noah, for an excellent presentation. Um, I have kind of three short related questions to ask you. The first one is on your response to the falseness question, and you say, well, power is negotiated. You know, the Iraqis have a veto power at the end of the day and so on. And I wonder whether you see any distinction between the way in which power is negotiated and the examples you gave and the way in which power would be negotiated as between an Iraqi civilian population and an authoritarian regime. Because we see very much the same kind of negotiation. You have one party that basically controls the course of apparatus, but at the end of the day is dependent to some extent on nonetheless the willingness and cooperation of the people because they're not either they don't have control of a sufficient course of apparatus or they're not prepared to use it to completely force obedience. And so they're, they're looking for some loyalty. That's what that negotiation represents. And I'm not sure that we would be as comfortable saying that it's false that we're there only in our own interest if, in fact, we're only giving and taking as much as any other Arab authoritarian regime might. My second question is with respect to your description of the kind of comparison between U.S. trusteeship and international trusteeship. And I would say with respect to East Timor and Kosovo, the difference is not so much the legitimacy of the autocrat and the way that the autocrat is governing, but the likelihood of convergence of interests. And here what I mean is that states have interests in a way that 
UN autocrats don't. And they have interest in resources, they have interest in influence, they have interest in spheres of influence as we've seen over a century in the Middle East. Um, they have interest in, in stakes with respect to neighbors and so forth that make them suspect and make a convergence of interests less likely than, say, a Lakhtar Brahimi character, even to the extent that the UN or the UN Security Council is perceived to still be an instrumentality of the U.S. And so there may be some real sense in which those two trusteeships are actually different, even for the Iraqi people. Um, and then I think the final question I have is with respect to whether or not it would be in the interest of the Iraqi people for an internationalization to occur for a slightly different reason than implied in my second question. And that reason has to do with the overall kind of um, profile of the United States at the moment in the region. What the Iraqi people, I think, to some extent, are now identifying as their interests are first and foremost as Iraqis who have experienced this very particular um, form of authoritarianism under the Ba'ath, form of sanction, wars, sanctions, and so forth, and they feel a kind of disenchantment with Arab nationalism. But at the same time, they find themselves at the vanguard, actually, of a new kind of Arab nationalist moment, such as it is, in which you have a fair amount of common sentiment across the Arab world that the role that the U.S. is currently playing in the Middle East and w with respect to the Arab world is one which is hostile and that the Palestinians and the Iraqis are essentially at the forefront of that confrontation. And so in some sense, for in a sense of Iraqi national identity, for a sense of the emergent state for Iraqis, isn't it the case that internationalization in some sense gives them, let's say, a new regime change, a new moment of regime change which allows them to have some faith or optimism in the possibility of a successful experiment? Thanks. Okay, so it's a, it's a characteristically brilliant question, Asla, or three. I'm going to characterize them as the Jerry-Saddam comparison, the Jerry-Bremer-Saddam comparison, the Jerry-Bremer-Sergio Vieira de Mello comparison, and the third one as the uh, ordinary person on the street uh, Arab nationalism question. The first two are somewhat easier than the third, although they're all pretty hard. The difference between the coercive power of a Jerry Bremer and the coercive power of a Saddam with respect to the negotiation of power between elites and ordinary people on the streets is solely a question of the willingness of the occupier to do the things that the autocrat was willing to do. If one had an occupier who was prepared to kill indiscriminately, to gas indiscriminately, and to shut down speech and assembly, I would think that there would be no difference between them with respect to the point you're raising. Since what I'm trying to do in part is offer an ethical account of what would be a defensible way of exercising authority, I don't think that would be defensible either, obviously, for a domestic autocrat or for an occupier. And I think in practice, it's also true that although the United States in Fallujah is, has already killed a lot of Iraqis, and no one knows what the ratio of civilians to people with guns that is, but it, you know, it might be a bad ratio, we just don't know, um, we can at least say that when 100,000 people massed on the street, or when 300,000 people showed up for Ziyarat al-Bayin in Iraq under Jerry Bremer, nothing happened to them. So. Again, that's just a question of willingness, but since in part what I'm trying to do is offer an ethical guide, I would just say, you know, it's not okay to do that. It's not acceptable to do that. And indeed, on that point, we've been relatively good. Second, the Jerry Bremer, Sergio Vieira de Mello question. How is it that um, maybe the international community doesn't have the same kinds of interests as the U.S. does? My answer to that is simply that the member states, the United Nations is a member-driven organization, and the member states do have interests, 
um, just like the United States has interests. Now, those interests are in a more complex interplay in something like the United Nations because they're mediated through these international organizations. But I think that the people who know best about such matters, who spend time in the UN, describe it, especially the Secretariat, as very much member-driven uh, and very interest-driven. It might be a different set of interests. They might be nicer interests. I'm not sure. But they are interests nonetheless. Last, I don't really think that ordinary Iraqis would feel that they were getting real regime change if an international regime under Lakhdar Brahimi or someone else came into play. Right now, Iraqis are clearly very hungry for regime change. I don't think they're going to be satisfied with a transitional administration uh, appointed by Brahimi, which is basically what they're about to get on June 30th, if all continues as it, in theory, is planned to continue. I don't think Iraqis will be at all even slightly happy with regime change or feeling that they own regime change until there are elections. Um, those elections have to happen. And the big puzzle is, and we're going to talk about this, I promise, next time, how do we talk about elections happening in a security situation that presently obtains? Let's see. We have another question there. Wait for the microphone. microphone that works too. Um, following up to that, given your, your struggle with paternalism just now and trying to kind of rationalize it to some extent, and speaking of this conflict of interest that the U.S. might have, to what extent is it necessary to set up a certain degree of objectivity, whether in appearance or reality, and which one do you think is more important? I mean, in, in reality, you have more of an ethical question of is there a conflict of interest or are we really acting for our own good or for, or for their own good. But more in appearance, which I think is more practical problem, to what extent is it necessary that the U.S. at least convinces the Iraqi people that they're acting for their own good? My view is that had we come with half a million troops, got the electricity up and running, we would have had a much longer, we the United States would have had a much longer period of time during which we could have shown Iraqis that we were beginning to listen to their voices and then actually have held elections. There's clearly some finite period of time beyond which the Iraqis, who naturally began profoundly skeptical of our intentions, could have been convinced our intentions were otherwise. That's over now. We can now never convince, if we ever could, the Iraqi public, and we will not convince the Iraqi public during the lifetimes of any of the people who are now of political consciousness age in Iraq, that this was anything other than a self-interested both occupation and initially intervention. Nor would they be wrong to think so. Indeed, precisely my argument last night was that we are nation-building for purely self-interested reasons. So I don't want to lie to the Iraqis. I think the Iraqis should know that fact. What I do want the Iraqis to realize, and what I believe will take a quarter of a century at least, assuming things go well for Iraqis to realize, is that, in fact, their interests can be served by someone from the outside, whether it's the international community or the U.S., providing a security blanket in which they can actually find a way to negotiate among themselves a power-sharing arrangement that has a chance of working. Then 25 years from now, Iraqis may see that this worked out all right for them. They'll still believe that it was not in their interests, and they'll be right with respect to that. It's not really in Iraqi interests. It simply converges with Iraqi interests. Now, if the U.S., the, the put, when push comes to shove, I'm going to talk about this tomorrow, so I don't want to prejudge it too much. There may be moments when an elected Iraqi government tells the United States, point blank, don't do X. No permission for that base. Rules of engagement can't work that way. We're already seeing that in Fallujah, when the governing council member said, look, you can't go in, and we're going to see that more after the transfer of sovereignty. 
At that point, I think, we will actually be under a duty to do what we're told. The United States will be under an ethical duty to do what it is told. And the test will be whether we, in fact, do so. And I, I'm not predicting any answers on that. Professor Jamal here. Thank you, Noah, for an excellent <laughs> presentation. I just want to kind of piggyback maybe on Asli's question and, and the other question that was asked in the audience about while we try to address the nation-building process um, in Iraq right now, which I am I, with you on it, it you know, it, it has to be seen through and whatnot, but th this whole issue of not indulging on the mistakes of uh, the U.S. invasion and how that was carried out, because in effect, it wasn't only the, the troop issue, it was almost like everything about the invasion, um, rather than creating a constituency that quote-unquote would welcome the, the troops, it really kind of marginalized and maybe, you know, had people sitting on the fence because of the lack of tro troops, a security problem emerges, and the U.S. response to, like, you know, incidents of violence or, you know, what, what could have been or potentially been, you know, isolated type of demonstrations, there's been a heavy-handedness in the responses, which is really kind of creating this anti-U.S. sentiment. Now, take that... Uh, um, in addition to what's happening at the regional level, right? So it's not like the U.S. had this great image in the region before and now it's, it's, it's worried about it. It's like, uh, you know, the, the whole negotiating away the Palestinian right to return and whatnot, at the same time also, you know, supporting authoritarian regimes in Egypt and, and, and the Gulf, yet, you know, Saddam was kind of, you know, Saddam was taken down. And then we think about internationalization solutions. I mean, wouldn't it be just, a, I mean, just, 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 just maybe to be a bit provocative, but wouldn't it be sound to say, okay, the, the invasion has taken place for the rebuilding process. We don't need any of the invading countries on the ground there and try to replace them. The idea is we, we managed to isolate the international community to the extent where I don't think anybody's going to go in. Um, so we're kind of stuck with the situation. Well, it, I think it would have been reasonable the day after the invasion was over to pivot and say, we're handing this over to the international community. That would have been a reasonable thing to do. It probably would have been a wise thing to do. Obviously, it didn't happen. And query whether the international community would have gone along, considering that they had, in fact, opposed the war. Many people in Paris, in Moscow, are pretty happy to see how badly things are going. And for different reasons, so are many people in places in the Arab world. Now, bottom line, our track record in the region couldn't be worse. But I don't actually think that in the early days of the occupation, our mistake was being too harsh with demonstrations and the like. In fact, in the early days of the occupation, we were very soft. There was one incident in Fallujah early on in which it turns out that perhaps one or two people were killed. And overall, our reaction was very, very delicate. If anything, our failure early on was in not assuring day-to-day on-the-ground security. Because if it was the case, as it was, that Iraqis were going to be profoundly skeptical of our intentions, and that people elsewhere in the Arab world were certainly going to be skeptical of our intentions, to say nothing of people in Europe and people in Greenwich Village, we know for a fact that the Iraqis would at least have been pleased had they not been in physical danger themselves. So we could have at least provided that. Um, and I don't think we even provided that. And my view is that one reason for the escalation, and it's been a very slow and steady escalation of the insurgency, uh, is that Iraqis gradually realized that the frightening military force with which we came was actually not invincible. And so slowly but surely, its vulnerabilities have been shown, and the fear at dealing with it has dissipated. And that's how we got ourselves into the situation we're in now. 
Let's see. Here. Yeah, um, I can't, uh, from what I see, if you look a little behind what is happening now and you look at the morality of nation building, I find there is a big difference between nation building in East Timor, in Kosovo, what possibly Liberia, what should have been in Rwanda, when the international community or even a nation intervene uh, for deep moral reason. And the public opinion international would probably recognize this. The big suspicion about the nation building that the U.S. are trying to build in Iraq is that they want to put there a government that will do our interests, as many governments that we put in power, a government that will allow us to keep the bases there and control their oil. We are very concerned because by uh, 2010, the reserve of oil will top right? Meanwhile, and start declining. Meanwhile, India and China are developing very fast, so there will be one billion people that will have a car and they want oil. So we need to have our troops there. Israel is no more enough. We have to have our troops there and to have bases that surround China. You already have Korea, you have Taiwan, and we have Central Asia. So these are deep strategic reasons that made the public opinion suspicious. Well, look, I agree that the public opinion is and ought to be suspicious of our motivations, especially because we are, by my own hypothesis, acting in our own self-interest there. But I would define that self-interest differently, and I think that many other people, uh, including hard-headed foreign policy realists, would feel similarly. I cannot think of a less efficient way to place troops in a position to be ready for a war with China over Taiwan than to invade Iraq. We had plenty of troops in Saudi Arabia. We could put plenty of troops in the Turkic republics. There's almost no place that we couldn't put troops with a proper investment of, let's say, one one-hundredth of the resources that we've already put into fighting this war in Iraq. So I don't believe that an intelligent realist would have thought that that was the goal here. I do agree with you that that suspicion is out there, and I also agree with you that where the international community, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't say the international community, by the way, intervened in Kosovo. NATO intervened in Kosovo when the United Nations refused to authorize intervention. But in any case, what one can say about those nation-building efforts is, in fact, I would argue, that they are less likely to succeed because they will have fewer resources devoted to them because it is not clearly in the interest of any particular member state for things to actually be fixed there. By contrast, in Iraq, which we may be screwing up far worse than any of those other things have been screwed up, we have already put enormous resources in, and we're going to put more resources in for the self-interested reason that we needed to succeed, both to avoid terror and also to avoid driving the cost of oil up much higher. So, you know, it's one of the ironies of history, perhaps, but I think nation-building has a better chance, at least with respect to the resources being put in, when it is in the particular interests of the nation-builder to make the country come out relatively safe. And I would just say last, it is a mistake for the United States to think, if it does think, and I'm not sure it does, well, the United States doesn't think anything, but it would be a mistake to think that we are better served by countries that just do our particular bidding. Turkey did not do our bidding in the run-up to the Iraq War, and that came at very grave cost to the United States. This occupation would look very different, and nation-building would look very different if we could have been in Baghdad five days earlier. We'd have had more troops in Baghdad. The looting wouldn't have happened in Baghdad. The government wouldn't have been cut apart. It, this was not an inconsequential move. But our relations with Turkey remain strong. It remains an important strategic ally. And the bottom line is that even uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz 
with whom I have many deep disagreements, as you can probably tell by now, um, has taken the view, publicly and privately, that Turkey, the fact that Turkey democratically voted not to participate in the war was a victory for the United States because it was a victory for self-government and therefore a victory for stability in Turkey. And I certainly believe that to be the case. Let me, let me ask you a question that uh, you hinted at before. Um, isn't it in the uh, self-interest of the United States to promote not only strong states, but states where there is a strong separation between church and state? In other words, promote leader, strong leaders like Kemal Ataturk rather than uh, Ayatollah Khomeini. And if you agree with that, is that an ethical thing to do? Well, first of all, I would say it's not in our interests. Um, laicite is a perfectly way, fine way to run a country if you can live with yourself and look at yourself in the mirror in the morning. Um, and, you know, the, the Kemalist version of this is specifically built on the French version. Even the Turkish word for secularism is just the Turkification of the word laicite. Um, but almost nobody anywhere in the 1.3 billion strong Muslim world wants that form of government today. And it would certainly not be in our interest to impose it. What I will say, and I'm going to touch on this briefly in the next lecture, but it's, it's again, deserving of its own long discussion, is that there is a form of regular conflict when one is engaged in the nation-building exercise between the enforcement of universalist liberal values and the self-determination rights of the people who are making their own national decisions. This is a real and felt conflict, and it comes up most explicitly, for example, over the issue of the rights of women where the United States as occupier is under a lot of pressure to and is encouraged to insist in the face of Iraqi opposition on, say, 25% women being represented in the legislature, a point which no Iraqi that I have met, other than the Iraqis on the uh, committee that drafted that, who are themselves people who live most of their lives in the United States or the UK, uh, thinks is going to work, thinks is viable, or even thinks is a good idea. It's also, by the way, a substantially larger percentage of women than we have in our Congress, which is not lost on the Iraqis. It's also something that would be perceived as unconstitutional and some might even say anti-egalitarian if it were tried in the United States. But it poses a stark contrast between the nation builder as a imperialist exporting values and the nation builder as a fair broker that wants to ensure the legitimate representation of all of the people who live in the country, including people who have been denied in the past the opportunity to express themselves. It doesn't get starker than that in terms of a deep uh, moral or ethical conflict. Um, but since I already tried to write a book about it, I tried not to dwell on it too much in these lectures. Okay, let us uh, thank Professor Feldman once more. Thank you very much. <laughs>